Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to this latest Policy Forum pod where we've got a special uh, pod focusing on Australia's election, an Australian policy pod, uh, and what's to come policy-wise out of the uh, result of the federal election over the weekend. I think it's fair to say that Australia woke up on Sunday with uh, something of a democratic hangover. On Saturday, there'd been a liberal sprinkling of democracy and uh, Australia had laboured to a result and woke up feeling a bit green around the gills. I'm sorry, I'll put away the uh, panomatic machine now. (laughs) Joining me today is, uh, we've reconvened our Australian policy panel. So uh, I have Quentin Grafton. Quentin is a professor of economics at Crawford School of Public Policy. He's also editor-in-chief of Policy Forum. Hello, Quentin. Oh, hi, Martin. Good to speak to you. Uh, uh, to his right, we have Sue Regan. Sue is a policy analyst with a particular expertise in social policy, and she's also a, a former political advisor to the UK Blair government. Hi, Sue. Hi. And finally, last but not least, we have Bob Cotton. Bob is a visiting fellow at Crawford School and works with the National Security College. He's also a former diplomat who has served most of his time in the Asia-Pacific region. Hi, Bob. Good morning, Martin. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, uh, before we get started, let's have a quick recap. This is what we know, and what we know is ultimately a lot of what we don't know. Uh, We don't yet know who will be the next Prime Minister, who will be the party in power. Uh, We probably won't know for some time, perhaps a week, maybe maybe more. Uh, We've still got some counting of postal votes to go, and once that happens, there will be some negotiation as to who actually forms uh, government. There is even a possibility that there could be a second election. Bob, do you think there's any kind of appetite in the electorate for that? Look, right now, I don't think there is. Uh, I think having just gone through it and having such a clear result in favour of Shorten and the Labour Party and really quite a slap in the face for um, the Prime Minister, I think uh, the electorate would would want to see uh, the Parliament and the government settle down and get on to do something. I would add, uh, please bear in mind the thought of the Governor-General right now. He would be having to think through all sorts of options, including the one you mentioned, is if the various uh, combinations of minority government and hung parliaments and so on don't work out, how long do you give that before you decide the best way to resolve it is to go to the country again? So we're in for a bit of a quite uncertain couple of months. What about you, Sue? Got an appetite for another eight weeks of this? <laughs> no, I, th- I don't think um, very few people in this country will have an appetite for a further election. Um, I mean, I think everyone will be making huge efforts to make a government work out of this. Um, but, you know, as we know, those efforts may um, not come to fruition. So it's, you know, it's definitely a possibility. But I think there would be a, a nationwide collective groan if we had to go into a, another election. Quentin, are you groaning at the thought? <laughs> yeah, I most certainly am. And look, I agree with Bob and Sue. Yeah, an unlikely event, I think. I think the uh, Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull will do their utmost to become the next Prime Minister of Australia, whatever that takes. <laughs> 
So let's have a quick look back over the eight weeks that we've uh, we've just been through and have a look at some of the you know sort of highlights of the campaign or some low points. So what for you were the were the were the, the pinnacle and the rock bottom? The pinnacle and the rock bottom. Um, I you know I'm tr- trying not to start with the negative, but I think there was <laughs> there were several lows. Um, I mean I think a lot of the uh, discussion around the detail of policy. Um, was very confusing for the electorate. I think, uh, in many ways, the you know politicians, I think you know both overestimated but under, underestimated the electorate. I think they overestimated that they uh, there was interest and understanding of some of the detail of policy. So some of the discussions around superannuation, uh, uh, you know, and understanding of the impact of the, of the company tax reforms. Um, I think they became quite sort of technical and, you know, mm-hmm. lost people's interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, I, you know, actually, even though it was quite detailed policy discussion, it felt quite, you know, one of the sort of low points for me. Um, and then, I, but I also think they kind of underestimated, I, I mean, the, the emphasis on, um, on slogans, um, I think kind of underestimated people's ability to, uh, you know, understand more than that and want more than that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I, I struggle to think of the high points, to be honest. But Bob, do you have any high points? Uh, no, I'm, I'm actually with you. I'm bumping along the bottom for most of the time. And I think we said earlier, we're pretty underwhelmed by the last eight weeks. I would make the quick point that many others have made that I think to go to a double dissolution on these grounds was strategically wrong. And I think that is now paying out in spades, sadly for Malcolm Turnbull. I think for me, uh, one of the low points was on border protection when Peter Dutton jumped into the campaign and started to really, um, you know, confuse the issues mightily and blaming asylum seekers for taking jobs away and really getting pretty close to the bone on that one. And I thought that was totally unattractive. And I think they was kind of like putting an attack dog out there to sort of put the frighteners on the voters. I don't think it worked that well. And also later on in the campaign on that topic when they, for the first time in about three plus years, they actually opened up with some data on actually pushing back boats and returning people and so forth and so on, which I think most of us would appreciate knowing most of the time anyway. But then they've closed it off again. So it was a pretty sort of distorted message. I think the Liberal side clearly felt they'd shored that one up and got the voters on side on that one, then moved on to something else. I find it hard to think of a really strong high point uh, I think both the election, both the campaign launches were pretty um, known in advance and taken for granted, could have been sort of so pre-sold. I think uh, we come to this later, but I think certainly the Labor Party ran the tighter, more focused campaign and done more policy thinking in advance. What about you, Quentin? High points for you? I can't think of many high points. Uh, perhaps the fact that there were policy discussions was was a positive. Yeah. Um, so I think that's from both sides, but particularly from the Labor Party. And I'd say the the low point for me was exactly what uh, Bob said: the Peter Dutton comment. That clearly wasn't just a throwaway line. It was very programmed and uh, it just didn't have any substance behind it the other thing i would say and most people would disagree with me on this but i like the numbers uh, and those numbers didn't add up on both sides they just didn't make sense so you know it would be it would be better if we if we as the people would have those numbers in a more realistic fashion that would have been helpful for for for, for, for us as as voters 
when we recorded the last podcast around the table there was agreement that what everybody wanted to see were some credible policies put forward which actually engaged on issues um do you think that actually happened sue did did the parties present credible policies for voters to chew over um, I think uh, so. I mean, I think on the coalition side, uh, the election campaign was uh, effectively trying to seek a mandate for their budget proposals. Um, and I think the budget, you know, did have uh, uh, some policies in it which made sense in in the long term. Um, you know, whether they were the right policies. Um, and I think in many ways, uh, the, you know, the electorate has has not given uh, Turnbull a mandate for his budget proposals, um, you know, and that's going to be a huge issue going forward. Um, I think on uh, Labour's side, uh, you know, they had a they had their hundred positive policies, um, and if you you know if you look at the detail of those, as you know, as some of us in the room will have done, uh, <laughs> they actually you know they add up to a very comprehensive policy review and set of policies. You know, whether that is a a, a strategy for government, you know, and, and the very fact that it was a kind of a hundred discrete policies you know is very hard to communicate to the to the public um but i think with it you know i think on both sides there are some you know are some uh you know decent policies but whether they uh have resonated with the public and being communicated and argued uh well you know i think that's very questionable what about you quentin i know that the communication of ideas is important to you did they manage to do that Look, I think in the board's scheme of things, they did. So Turnbull kept on hammering home the economy and jobs and certainty with themselves. Of course, that's not what we've got in this, uh, this election. And then Labor was focusing much more on uh, health education and, and looking after the, the, the overall uh, the state of affairs for, for people and, and growing the economy by, by helping people, I suppose. So they're really quite different perspectives. And I think the electorate picked that up. I think maybe not the details of the policy, and I would agree with Sue on that, but I think if they went in the election booth on, on Saturday and they voted, they were clear what they were sort of getting. They were sort of getting a, um, you know, a, a Tony Abbott light, I suppose, with Malcolm Turnbull, with the budget that, that had come through uh, in May, and with Bill Shorten, they were getting a, a policy-focused health and education type type uh, sort of platform so I think they sort of knew what they were getting and then of course there were the people who didn't vote for either those uh, the coalition or Labour who were probably saying well I'm not happy with either of them I'm mm. going to put my vote someplace else and uh, and quite a number of Australians did that so so obviously the message from both of those uh, the coalition and Labour obviously didn't resonate with those people and so they're looking for other answers maybe quick solutions or slogans or whatever they're looking for whatever they they voted for they they certainly couldn't find it in the in the major parties. What do you think, Bob? Uh, yeah, I agree with both of that, and particularly picking up a point that Sue made, thinking back to the sort of policy proposals in the budget, uh, the company taxation uh, proposals, we're taking that down. I think there's quite a lot of disquiet in the community about the fairness and equity of all of that. Uh, certainly the government made proposals on superannuation and, and that, didn't want to touch negative gearing. Labor, on the other hand, did have quite sensibly crafted, I thought, negative gearing and capital gains proposals which would grandfather the thing through. So there was quite a good policy content in all of that. Uh, but I think the electorate kind of went more for the fairness and the equity side on that one. I'm a little surprised it didn't link back to housing affordability 
as much as I thought it might, because I thought that issue might bite a bit more. But I suspect Quentin's right. When people went into the booth last Saturday, they had a pretty clear idea of the equity and the fairness of some of this stuff as well. And particularly, if you only just have a job, you want to hang on to it. What about health? What about Medicare? And all those things we heard. So they matter. I mean, elections always throw up surprises as part of the uh, campaigning. But but a, a, in this campaign, one thing that did take people by surprise was something that didn't happen in Australia. It was something that happened over the other side of the world with uh, uh, Britain's Brexit EU referendum vote. But, but what sort of effect do you think that had on the campaign, if any? Look, I, I think the initial effect, like um, like for the rest of the globe and certainly in Britain, was one of shock and surprise. I think most people thought, well, okay, they're having this election, this plebiscite, and you know they'll rock on and stay there, which they didn't. So you have the immediate shock, surprise, the impact on the market, shares fall, people worry, Britain's credit rating goes down quickly. So that sort of stuff. So very quickly, both sides will get to get out there saying, trust us, we can manage this. Australia's links to Britain are only so much these days, not like they were. We'll be able to manage it through trust us so forth and so on but as the week went on i think the complexities of what's involved in brexit start to be revealed and it's much more complicated and a lot more to play out there some of which is quite unknown and, un- and quite frightening and i think you're looking at the future unity of the united kingdom as we've known it what's going to happen to scotland what's going to, happen to northern ireland look what's happened to the british leadership of both the conservative and the labor party and the way the European Union now thinks about itself and the ongoing rock-on effects in Europe. So I think all of those started to be thought of a lot more as the week went on, perhaps fortunately for both our sides, that didn't really get into the final vote as much as that. But I think people are concerned about it, absolutely. Sue, the Brexit vote happened at a time when the major parties were essentially doing their campaign launches. Do you think it took the wind out of the sails of those? Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly took them off the top of the news, um, you know, and Brexit was the lead story in the news for several days, you know, after mm-hmm. Britain voted uh, to leave. Um, so it was a, I think it was a distraction from the the, the campaigns and the uh, election here. Um, I mean, I've been thinking what impact it might have had here. I mean, I think that it has clearly demonstrated uh, sort of on a global level that, you know, people have power um you know and that the people have britain have uh, you know have voted with their feet to leave the eu i mean it wasn't you know i think there was a margin of about one million which is uh, significant uh, some people say close but i think that is a significant difference um you know and perhaps that's meant in australia that you know it's reminded people that their vote has power and uh you know perhaps that has been a contributing factor to the increase in vote for uh, independents and minor parties, uh, you know, that that is not a wasted vote, that actually it can have an impact. And, uh, you know, and I think it certainly has in this election, you know, um, that's, I think, the the key uh, change from, you know, the last election is that there's an increased, increased primary vote for the minor parties and the independents. Um, so, you know, perhaps it's had that effect. I don't think um, the Prime Minister's call for stability in light of Brexit really had much impact on uh, the electorate here. Um, I think, uh, you know, of course, uh, people can see the merits of stability, but um, I think they, you know, have other concerns in their lives. And uh, so I don't think that was, uh, you know, particularly uh, impactful by the Prime Minister. 
Look, I'd agree with Bob and, and Sue. I, I don't think it had a big impact uh, from my perspective, but it did have a big impact on the Spanish election, which was the yeah. 25th of June. So Rajoy got, got in again, I think, because of the, uh, the concern. Obviously, Spain is in the EU <laughs> and a, a key partner with the UK. So I think that concern there did have an impact on that election. I think in Australia, it, it didn't. Uh, and I think if it had, I think it would have a different result. I think Malcolm Turnbull would be the prime minister right now. That would be a, a done deal. So I don't think it did uh, to the extent that people are, re- are aware that uh, that they are concerned about their futures. And we had a different vote on Saturday than the Brits had for Brexit. But nevertheless, people are concerned about their futures and clearly voting for other parties uh, other than Labour and the coalition is an indication that they are unhappy with state of affairs and business as usual. So to that extent that Brexit indicates that people are unhappy with the state of affairs and business as usual, less so in Australia than it is in the UK, indicates that's growing. And I suspect it will grow unless there's adequate uh, policy response. Then I think that's a sign of the times and the future. For, for, for Australia, we have to be careful that we do deliver for, for, for everyone. Otherwise, we might have our own, <laughs> our own, uh, our own uh, uh, particular moment down, down the road where, where people will, uh, will act in ways that will surprise uh, the uh, political elite. Well, that sounds like a good place to finish with uh, part one. So stay with us. We'll be back after this. Professional development at the ANU, Australia's top-ranked university, is easier than you think. ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy National Professional Development can build the knowledge and skills of your team in 2016. Google Crawford School of Public Policy to get started today. Welcome back to Policy Forum Pod. I still have with me Bob Cotton, Sue Regan and Quentin Grafton and we are talking about Australian policy in the wake of the federal election and the sort of non-result that happened this weekend. Before we get underway with part two, a quick reminder that if you are enjoying this, we would uh, be pleased to hear what you think. You can email us at team at policyforum.net, interact with us on Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum or Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And if you're feeling really generous, we would really appreciate you leave us a review on iTunes. It's a great way to uh, help us get the word out about it. So, all right, in part two, let's perhaps have a have a look back to the kind of policy ideas that were floated in the the first time that we convened this panel. Um, Each of the panellists talked about areas which they thought would be a focus and areas which should be a focus but probably won't be a focus and also suggested a policy idea. So I want to revisit some of those. Bob, first of all, you talked about um, you hoped that there would be a suggested kind of increase in infrastructure development and all of that. That, that surrounds that. Did you see any of that? Not really. No, I didn't, Martin. I think certainly in an environment where, when we're, where we clearly need infrastructure, we've got a need for investment in a whole raft of things. Uh, there's a lot of good projects out there. We have an infrastructure Australia, but by and large, they seem to be being ignored by the process. Uh, we've got money at a low capital cost. It's pretty low interest rates. It's a good time for the government to be borrowing to put into infrastructure. As I said back eight weeks ago, I see infrastructure broadly. I included it things like the 
national broadband network which really works effectively. I include in it public research such as that done by the CSIRO. So that's one that I would like to see go forward and I think there's a real opportunity to do stuff in that space. Our superannuation funds can dry into that one as well. Uh, but no, I didn't hear much of any of that during the whole campaign and I wasn't terribly surprised by that. The other idea I put forward eight weeks ago was climate change, which I think is a fundamental game changer for this country as well as for the globe. Uh, apart from both parties putting out their platforms in their launches, it didn't really get into the campaign that much. Uh, occasionally you got sort of money thrown at the Barrier Reef because we are worried about that and a few bits and pieces like that. I think I said last time round, and I still agree, I still maintain this position, I think Labor went into the election with a much more coherent policy and having done some forward thinking about some of the fundamentals we're going to have to address, such as, you know, decarbonising the economy, power generation by coal, how do we take that down, how do we build renewable energy and so on. Touched on it a bit during the campaign, but no, not really, and that's work waiting out there in the next couple of months. So you, one of the ideas that you floated was uh, a policy on sort of child well-being, which encompassed you know things like mental health and child obesity. Did any of the parties come to the uh, table with that? No, none of them uh, sort of tackled it head on. Um, I, mean, I think a number of policies can that they have in their uh, package of policies address some aspects of that. So particularly around health and education. Um, but no, it wasn't uh, addressed head on and certainly not additional investment into that uh, area. Um, and I think generally uh, social policy issues didn't get much uh, time during the election. Um, you know, there was calls by ver- various civil society groups to uh, tackle particular aspects of uh, inequality and disadvantage. Um Poverty wasn't really talked about in the election. Um, You know, there was various calls to uh, raise the level of New Start, which is the the unemployment benefit in Australia, which there is a wide consensus is a a very low level internationally. Um, But, you know, that didn't come up in the election. So, yeah, so a bit disappointing uh, from a social policy perspective. Why do you think that was? Why didn't social policy rate that much of a mention? I mean, I think it's partly a matter of, I, I think there's become a sort of common, uh, I think, uh, m- perhaps myth but, but among politicians that uh, social policy issues uh, don't kind of work with the... Uh there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Electorate that you can't communicate well uh, issues around uh, poverty and inequality. Um, I mean, I I, I find that um, a bit surprising because I think you know certainly the 2014 budget illustrated that you know people really care about fairness, you know, and care about others as well as their own uh, well-being. Um, and I think there are ways of communicating. Um, you know, shared concerns around the well-being of all citizens. Um, but yes, I think, you know, I think they, you know, perhaps don't come up strongly in uh, the focus groups. Um, you know, and I think it's also um, 
that uh, whilst I agree there's a you know an important uh, that the, the focus on the economy, it's not just the economy. Um, you know, we, it, you know, it's economy and other things, um, you know, and for, for a variety of reasons, that's not being really pursued by uh, the major parties at the moment. The other thing that you uh, touched on was a plea for policy vision from our politicians. Was there any of that? Um, I didn't think there was much. Um, I think there. I think there's a kind of misunderstanding that um, you know you saying that you setting out your spending plans for the next you know however long you know whether that's a ten year uh, forward estimate or a three year estimate. Uh, that that's not a long term vision. You know, a vision is about where you want to be as a country. Um, and I didn't feel you know either the current candidates for the prime ministership really uh, set out that vision of how they uh, saw Australia in the future, um, what it should look like, what we want it to look like and, you know, and how we can get there. So, yeah, I, I'm still making a plea for a bit more vision. On a related topic, Quentin, when we asked you to uh, pitch a policy to us, you gave a very politician-like answer, in fact, and didn't totally pitch. Did, did people vote for me, Martin? That's the question. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks, maybe. Uh, you gave a very politician-like answer. You didn't pitch a policy, but you did make an impassioned plea for policy coherence, for policy, policies to not be crafted in and of themselves, but to think about how they impact other areas. Did, did you see any of that? From the coalition perspective, absolutely not. It doesn't make sense in terms of uh, this ad hoc tax reform process in terms of business tax cuts over a, a long period of time without ignore, ignoring a whole set of other issues that had to be done on tax reform. So totally not comprehensive, uh, not uh, in terms of what was required from the country and very disappointing. In terms of the ALP, in terms of their comprehensiveness, Sue pointed out and uh, Bill Shorten told us during the election campaign they had 100 positive policies. So if you link them up, you could see that there was a coherence in, in quite a number of those policies. But um, I didn't really hear them telling us how they linked up. <laughs> they were sort of quite separate. Uh, and so obviously there was some thinking behind it. Uh, I didn't think that uh, that message came across. So I think you'd have to do your homework yourself. And there's a lot of homework to do. And I'd be very surprised if, uh, very, if, if many people in the electorate actually did that. <laughs> so I, I think it is beholden on the leadership uh, of any party to to express what they mean when they talk about policies and how they connect. Uh, I suppose the board vision of health and education was certainly out there, but how this all connected into tax reform in terms of uh, 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 changes and improvements, reforms for the economy, they didn't really come through. The, the other thing you, you touched on, Quentin, was that you were, you hoped that politicians when they put forward policy also talked about the cost of doing nothing the cost of business as usual was there any of that no no it was just uh, just totally not there in fact i, I pointed that out at the beginning of our uh, interview today I just don't think the costings were there. The, the 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 budget numbers from from the budget in May. I mean, they didn't make sense in terms of the revenue projections. Uh, the numbers that we saw <laughs> from both parties just just they don't make sense, and and that's a real problem because uh, we're going to have to face the reality of those numbers right now uh, with with the new government, whatever that government is, whatever color, shape, or, or hue it has. 
if I could just add to that, just putting on Sue's point, I think I completely agree with her, but sadly we don't get social power. What we get is slogans. Mm. I mean, once you talk about health or education or the NDIS, which is there, I think people say, oh, that's social policy. We'll move on right now. Well, it isn't, and you are arguing for all sorts of other things that need to be addressed in that space. And when you think of Morrison's... Um, budget numbers on the last week basically it was kind of these welfare bludgers anyway we're going to make up an extra two billion in that space that sort of so way too much slogans and on the government side jobs and growth for christ's sake that's such a hollow empty slogan it deserved the derision it got i mean that that's not good enough for ordinary people anybody so did you see any uh, policy coherence no very little and um we were all being rather negative about this here, but um, I think, uh, you know, picking up on Bob's point that, you know, and again, it was a point I made earlier about, I think, underestimating the electorate. You know, slogans uh, are not good, are not policies. Um, you know, you need to uh, have a set of policies within that that are coherent and that you argue for, you know. Um, and that that doesn't, that didn't happen in this uh Electra. And, um, you know, I think we can all understand reasons why that might not happen. And I think, you know, the 24 hour media cycle makes it very difficult to, for politicians to take, have the time to build an argument and communicate well with the electorate. But, um, but I think that's a bit you know, I still think that's a bit of an excuse. I think uh, we should all expect more from our politicians. Another thing that uh, the, the, the panel talked about the last time we did this was the uh, issue of trust and our trust in, in politicians. Did politicians over the last eight weeks do anything to rebuild that? I think um, I think certainly I come at it slightly differently. I think the the, the fundamental trust is is a very key point. Always is because if the electors don't trust you to do what you say you're going to do, or they don't trust you're going to implement it, or they don't simply believe you, then they'll they will put you down. And I think they've done that certainly to the coalition this time round. I think Labor, to its credit, has presented as a more united party, which is more coherent and can be trusted to do some of what they say they'd like to do. But the vote for the other parties, clearly, they I think they're trusting them a whole lot more. I think the Greens are more articulate in what they want to do, and they certainly have a log of claims on social policy and the environment. And Nick Xenophon's another one, and then we'll come to the Senate, I know, later. But equally, I think people are looking for that. If they don't see trust, if they see disunity, they will vote against it. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's probably uh, brought home to uh, all the, you know, well, certainly the major parties and others that, you know, trust is something that is built up over time, you know. And actually, I think, uh, you know, the the increased vote for independents and minor parties, I think, demonstrates that, you know, trust has been broken uh, and that that will take time to uh, recover you know that even a you know even a very you know I think quite a strong campaign by Labour I think still hasn't translated through to you know the that people truly trusting them again you know the it's still you know people have memories and it's not that long ago that you know the Labour Party was hugely divided and um, so yeah so I think that you know the trust issue is really important but it's something that yeah, we'll we'll take time. Quentin, are you feeling in a more trusting mood after the last eight weeks? <laughs> Trust the voter, Martin. Trust the uh, voter. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I just if I could just come back in it, I, I would like to say something a bit more positive for the coalition and Turnbull, which is I think he's had a very hard hand to play these last nine months because I think I said at the uh, our original talk, he's been fighting two opponents all the way through. One, your former political opponents out there, the Labor Party, but equally the battle to contain within his own party the very strong and negative conservative opinion which we're seeing breaking out right now. And I think the voters know this and they don't like it and they will punish it if it doesn't sort itself out and settle down. So it will certainly be interesting to see how that plays out over the over the next few weeks. Well, that sounds like a good place to end part two. Stay with us because in part three we're going to be taking a look into our crystal balls and uh, having to think about what might happen over the next few years. Welcome back. You're with Policy Forum Pod. It's brought to you by policyforum.net, Asian and Pacific's platform for public policy debate and discussion. And still with me, I have Sue Regan, Bob Cotton and Quentin Grafton. And in this section, we're going to look at uh, what might happen over the next few years, presuming that one of the major parties can actually form a government. And we're also going to be taking a look at the Senate and what's happening there. Of course, because when Malcolm Turnbull called the election, it was a double dissolution election, uh, which means all of the seats in the Senate are contested. And I imagine that he called it in the hope that he would get a slightly more controllable <laughs> Senate. Um, I'm not sure that's that's going to happen. It looks to me like it's a fairly unruly Senate coming with large numbers of independents. Bob Cotton, what sort of effect do you think that might have on policymaking? I think it's going to make the task of effective government and policy implementation that much more difficult. It's going to take a very mature and sensible and um, negotiating-minded government to actually work with uh, the senators to actually make sure they get the numbers, get the legislation through. To be a tad more positive, this is not unknown in Australian history. We generally don't have a majority in the upper house for the government of the day. They generally do have to learn to work with the senators and talk to them. I think the Abbott government was particularly bad in not doing that. I think the Turnbull government was learning and I think uh, they're going to have to learn a whole lot more because you've got a, a broad span of opinion in there and you're going to have to work with them to get the legislation through. We still don't have the two, 2014 budget through, do we? So all of that's still undone. So, I mean, even the fundamentals of government, of getting your budget through, uh, you're going to have to negotiate and that represents the Australian voter and they want to be heard. So if you're government, you're going to have to work hard at that and just do the day, basic daily tasks of government. Quentin, how will whoever forms government be able to cope with a, a Senate that includes characters like potentially Pauline Hanson and uh, Darren Hinch? Well, it's not potentially Pauline Hanson at all. It's a certainty that Pauline Hanson's yes. in there. It's a question of how many senators she brings with her. So it, it could be three senators for, for her party. Hinch, of course, has got his own uh, Senate seat. And we've got Xenophon with at least three Senate seats. So, I mean, there are constructive parties in there in the sense that Nick Xenophon has demonstrated over several years that he's uh, prepared to negotiate, be prepared to be constructive in terms of getting legislation through that he views as in the national interest. So I think from the, on the Xenophon, 
Xenophon's side, I think he would work constructively with either party for the for the good of the nation. Uh, in terms of Jackie Lambie, Hinch, um, Pauline Hanson, uh, <laughs> really, um, I, I don't know. They, they, they tend to focus on particular issues, so they'll be very important to them, and so they'll need to be satisfied on those issues if they're going to cut deals on other sets of issues. So that will be problematic uh, for, for whatever uh, government gets, gets in. Then, of course, it's not just the upper house, it's the lower house as well. We don't know whether we're going to have a majority or minority. It seems likely it will be a minority government, and it's a minority government. Uh, then you've got the uh, how you negotiate with the uh, five independents, possibly six independents uh, in in the House. So, and that that's that's going to be problematic. Um, on the Labour side, you've got uh, Adam Bant, you've got uh, Andrew Wilkie that would tend to favour a Labour sort of uh, view of the world. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got a, <laughs> a Bob Cato and possibly Kathy McGowan who tend to favour more uh, a coalition view of the world. Um, and then you've got uh, one or two uh, potentially with uh, with an Xenophon uh, who would, I think would could, could go either way depending on the, the, the nature of the government and how they, they operate. So it's, a, it, it's clearly a negotiation time. Whoever becomes Prime Minister will have to be able to get out of the big office, go down the corridor and talk to people <laughs> uh, and and reach out and uh, shake their hands and and I would argue as well beyond simply the Parliament House here in Canberra they need to actually do that engagement uh, in the nation as a whole which I which I think has been lacking for for a number of years from 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 quite a number of our previous prime ministers they they failed to get out there listen understand and then clearly make a difference in terms of the parliament. And I think that's why we've had the sorts of outcomes we've had in terms of uh, a prime minister every couple of years. Uh, we're getting quite famous for it worldwide now. Um, I think part of that's part of the problem. I think, I mean, I think we can be confident that uh, policies will be very well scrutinised in the next few years, you know, which is a, which is a good, good thing. thing. Um, there'll be a lot of debate, a lot of negotiation, um, you know, so that's, I mean, I think that is a positive. Um, I mean, the negative of that, of course, is this, you know, that process can be very time consuming, can be very divisive, um, you know, makes it more difficult to get, um, I think, kind of long term strategic reforms through. Um, but yes, but at least, you know, I think it, it won't be um, it won't be a dull and secret parliament. I think there will be a lot of open and forthright frank and fearless debate in the in the next few years just one point to try and cheer sue up here if i can <laughs> uh which is we shouldn't although i don't expect it myself necessarily we shouldn't necessarily assume in the new parliament and the message sent about the minor parties and so on that labor will necessarily oppose everything they may well decide that there are some common ground with the government and maybe that's a sort of different signal they want to send. And I think the Greens under the Di Natale leadership is also more disposed to looking for deals to do here. So I think, but again, as Sue has correctly said, that takes a lot of work and a lot of scrutiny to get that through. But in our system, what else do you do? You've got to go and go, go through that if you're going to get it through. Julia Gillard, as we keep saying, got a lot of stuff through both houses and I don't think she ever got the credit she deserved for doing that. So can you give me a sense of what you think we might actually be able to achieve policy-wise over the next three years, taking a slightly more optimistic view? Um, well, I, I mean, I will try and be optimistic, but I do think the next three years will be very difficult um, uh, for all the reasons we've been talking about. You know, such a diverse set of uh, 
individuals that you know will be at the you know will have the power in getting forward any significant policy reforms um but i do agree with bob we should not assume that labor will oppose you know everything that there you know there may be opportunities for the two major parties to come to some agreement on these issues um but i do think you know in a i mean we're at a time where we you know if you look at the issue of climate change the next three years is absolutely critical you know in terms of getting some really significant uh, agreement on some big issues of how we you know make the transition to a low carbon economy and it's going to be very you know I struggle to be optimistic on that. But, you know, the next few years will make that more challenging. Quentin, do you think there's uh, any chance that we might tackle some of these big issues like climate change over the next three years? What do, what do you think is in store policy-wise? Well, if the coalition forms government, then no. If Labour forms government, it will be a challenge. But certainly the issues of budget repair, I can't see budget repair happening over the next three years. I really, I really can't. It's, it's just going to be too problematic in a minority government. I will just take exception with Sue and Bob. So there was a presumption there that, that the coalition would form the yes. government. Quite right. Um, Quite I, right. I, I think right. it's perfectly possible. Right. I, I don't know. Right. I don't know Quite what the right. odds are that, that Shorten and Labor form a minority government. And in that case, I don't think the coalition would be amenable at all. I, th- right. I think they'll be absolutely implacable in opposition because they'll feel they've been cheated. And they've already making this point. In fact, Malcolm Turnbull in a speech uh, on Saturday night or Sunday morning was making it clear that they felt that they were cheated uh, by Labor in terms of the, the campaign. So I think they'll be very obstructionist. Uh, so, so Labor might be prepared to be more minimal, but I don't think that would be the coalition's point of view. Quentin's quite right, and I thought that after I'd said what I said, he's quite right, and certainly I think it would be quite an implacable opposition from the coalition. Yeah, so if that were the case. they will do everything they can to thwart uh, Bill Shorten uh, prime ministership in terms of any 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 reform, anything that's positive in any sense. So, so I, I think that would not not be good for. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, that's where I think we'd end up if we have that. Bob, what what do you think is the big lesson from the campaign? I think the big lesson is um, don't take the voters for granted. They're not mugs. Come up with a very clear set of policies, explain what you're going to do, and then get on and take decisions to implement it. I think people are looking for that. They're not finding it in the big parties. The sloganeering was way too much, and I think that's why there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the process. And until we get some of that basic political skill set working, married to good policy, then we're going to keep um, you know, going around in circles. And this country doesn't need to go around in circles. We need to take some tough decisions and move on, budget repair being another one. Sue, what have we learned apart from the fact that eight weeks is a very long time? Yes, eight weeks is a very long time. And I think, um, I think we knew that, that at the beginning and, you know, trying to keep the momentum going uh, has been a bit of a struggle. I mean, I, th- I, I agree with Bob that they're the main lessons. I think there's um, also just something about recognising that, you know, you don't, don't start afresh at the start of an election. You do have your whole, you know, the legacy of your record in the previous few years, you know, so the party should be thinking you know, now about how they want to build their credibility and their policy agenda for the next election. And um, yes, that people have, you know, I think, yes, people, you know, are not mugs. They they can understand policy arguments, but they also have memories, um, you know, and you have to address those legacy issues too. 
So I'll end with a slogan, Martin, the three Ps. <laughs> so I, I think politicians really need to focus on the people. It is really about the people. It's not about them. The second thing they need to talk about is policy and they're actually explaining what's happening. And it's not just over an election campaign, as Sue said. It's over several years. And the third thing is performance, actually deliver. So if you want to look at where people made their judgment on Saturday night, they looked at the where they'd be listened to. Uh, whether there really were policies on the table that they were interested in. And then the third part was performance. Did the current prime minister or past prime ministers, did they deliver? And I think they made their judgment on that, that, they, uh, that the performance wasn't what they wanted. That sounds like a good place to uh, end it. Thanks very much for your time, Bob. Thank you. Sue and you. Quentin. You're more than welcome. Well, that's it for this Policy Forum pod. Thanks very much for joining us. Don't forget you can keep up to date with uh, public policy analysis, debate and discussion at policyforum.net. We're certainly interested to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about today. Keep in contact with us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. We'll be back next week with our regular Policy Forum pod. That's it for now. Cheerio. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.